You're listening to Dr. Leslie Inspires, a show where we empower mothers by raising their level of awareness, discussing tough mother-son issues that everyone knows exists, but no one is talking about. Dr. Leslie is joined by Mr. Wayne, who provides insight from a male perspective. To learn more about us, visit our website at www.drlesleyinspires.com. Now, here's your host, Dr. Leslie. Okay. Welcome, everyone. Why don't we go ahead and pray? Are you ready for that, Leslie? Yes. Eternal God, our Father, we come before you again, thanking you for this evening, God, for bringing us together safe and sound and healthy. We thank you for the message uh, that's coming from Danita and collaboration by all. We get to learn yet again some valuable principles on how to deal with our sons and just family matters as a whole. So we ask that you guide the conversation with your Holy Spirit. Help us to embrace the conversation. No right or wrong. It's just discussion and learning and loving. So we lift it up to you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mr. Wayne, for that prayer. Mm -hmm. And thank you all for joining us. I know there'll be some others joining as we go along, but uh, I'm reminded to be mindful of the time. Okay. And so I want to get started with uh, thanking you all for being on the call. Welcoming uh, those of you that were on yesterday, welcoming you back. Um, and I just want to say a little bit again about Dr. Leslie Inspires and why we do what we do. Part of this initiative is as a public school educator, I saw women just constantly coddling and doing a disservice to their sons. And really over the last I would say five years, it seems like the problem has gotten worse. And at some point I just said, what can I do? It was something that I've been doing already, been doing the whole 25 years. But within the last five years, I've seen, you know, just, just more of the problem. And it bothers me because as I watch young men matriculate from age four uh, well into their 20s and, you know, going into adulthood, um, I can almost spot how a young man is going to turn out based on his relationship with his mom, based on how she treats him, based on how she feels about him, based on how she uh, interacts and pushes him and encourages him, and how she interacts with uh, other men. And so putting all of that together, just the short version of it, uh, I've come up with Dr. Leslie Inspires. And then you heard Mr. Wayne on here uh, who said the prayer and he'll also close us out in prayer. He gives us a male perspective. And so that that's his role in all of this because as women, sometimes we don't have a male perspective or we don't have a male perspective that we can listen to or trust and believe in. So Mr. Wayne is our trusted male advisor. And so having said all of that, we've got Miss 
Danita Alamin on the phone, I mean, on the, on Zoom with us. And she is an educator. She's also a friend that I've known since childhood and uh, we go way back. So uh, I really do appreciate you coming on to share with us, uh, Danita, uh, affectionately known as Claire. And so outside of being an educator uh, or being an educator, Danita, if you can just give us a little bit of background um, about yourself and just, you know, just a snippet so that our listeners and viewers know who you are. Okay. I'm Donita Alameen. Um, like Leslie said, um, we've been friends for a very long time. And Dr. Leslie, I do appreciate you even inviting me to speak on Dr. Leslie Inspires. I take that as an honor. Um, I have been teaching first grade for about 20 years. I think this might be my 19th year in, in Shaker Schools in Ohio teaching first grade. Prior to that, I taught a few years of fourth grade in North Carolina. Um, I have two children, that two biological children, um, 25-year-old and a 21-year-old, and then I have three um, additionally acquired children, whom I love, that are um, 18, soon to be 19, uh, 14, and 13. And so um, we've got a, a house full. Okay, so having said that, thank you so much for that. Uh, I know that as an educator, um, you you work in Shaker, I think most of your Shaker Heights, which is more of an upscale area uh, in the Cleveland area. And so working with young men or, well, t- real quick, tell us the dynamics or the demographics of the students that you work with and how it has evolved somewhat over the years uh, in Shaker. Okay, so Shaker Heights used to be one of the um, highly regarded districts in the greater Cleveland area. It is um, a community. They say that the community is, a community is known by the schools that it keeps. And our district was one of the first districts in our area to um, integrate black and white families, um, to do away with busing and to, bring the races together and try to solve the issues of um, the achievement gap 40 years ago. We are still at this time in in 2020 still working on closing that same achievement gap and um, as an educator I see that a lot of the problems that the black families are having with their with the success of their children stems from some things that are happening at home. Um, the children certainly have the environment to thrive and they have the tools that are necessary to thrive um, and they're certainly smart we know that you know they're equally as intelligent as um, as white children might be but somewhere along the way um, there is a there is a, a divide that occurs where you have children that are, or if you are a very smart child and you're showing how smart you are and you want to go to college and you're doing well in school, that's not perceived as being um, cool. And so you have a lot of children who could be more successful, but without adequate support at home and without, or, you know, without guidance 
um, if not from parents, from other mentors, to have them understand the value of the education that they have before them. Um, it's difficult for a lot of students to um, go in that track and still maintain what they would consider their social status. And the demographics have changed considerably in Shaker over the course of the um, couple decades that I've been there. The elementary school that I'm in right now has about 70% African-American, 30% other, and that includes white. And then we have, um, I think there are 19 different um, countries represented in the elementary school that I teach at. Wow, okay. So that gives you a little bit of background about the types of children and the environment that she uh, works in. And I know too, um, Danita, you end up getting uh, a lot of, you usually you end up with the rough class. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Um, I started noticing probably, well, my very first year that I was there, in the spring of my very first year of teaching in Shaker, there was this one white family that, that came to our spring open house. They had a son that was in kindergarten. He was quite a handful. And they told me, I, I didn't know them, they introduced themselves to me and told me that they were requesting to have me as his teacher because they heard that I would be the one to straighten their, their child out. Um, and so, and I guess it was because during my first year, like schools often will do, if there's a new teacher coming in, that teacher gets a big influx of the, the children that the other teachers don't necessarily want to deal with. And um, they watch and see how, how well you handle it. And so I guess I had done a, a decent enough job where um, with that second year, I had that couple's child and I had several other children that were behavior issues. And that trend continued for a lot of years, probably about, probably 16 or 17 of the years from the start of my career in Shaker up till just a couple years ago, I would always get the most challenging kindergartner. I teach first grade. I would always get the most challenging kindergartner behavioral wise. And then they would put the number two child in someone else's first grade class. And then I would get three, four, five, six in, in terms of the behavior problems. And so um, it was just a matter of what I could manage and other teachers couldn't. Well, after about 10 years of that or so, I started to notice that trend and, and, it, and I wasn't so much, um, you know, like, oh, yeah, they know I can handle it. It was more like, whoa, wait a minute. I get paid the same amount of money as my counterpart. Why am I having to deal with these types of classes? Um, a lot of it was parent requests. Um, and then, you know, it was just a matter of the administrators putting the children in my class. They know that I would do everything that I could to change those behaviors to more positive behaviors and increasing their academic prowess as well. And so um, it was just something that developed over time. And then I, I did hit a wall a couple years ago and told them that they were they would have to do something different or I would have to do something different. And so um, they did change it up a little bit. I think they may have given the number one and number two to somebody else. And then I got three, four, five, or three. Wow. <laughs> 
So that I, I see Talisa over there shaking her head like this. <laughs> As an educator, uh, she knows exactly what you are talking about. So I want to divert just a little bit. So now we've got some background. We know where you stand as an educator. As it relates to transforming the relationship with your son, I know you have a, a story. And I want to kind of relate it to what you see in the school system to what you see at home. So uh, Danita has a son. She was married for a number of years. And at some point, uh, she ended up, that marriage uh, ended up ending and then she uh, did something else. So Danita, I just wanna talk about, I would like you to talk about um, your 18, was it 18 years? Your, your 18 year marriage along with uh, how you felt like it impacted your son uh, and daughter, if you like, you could just say your children, how that divorce impacted your son? Was it negative, positive? What your thoughts were prior to getting the divorce? And if you felt like the divorce was for you or was it for your children? What was the impact of it? And then where are your children uh, today from an emotional standpoint? And how do you manage it as a mother? Okay. Um, I was married in my first marriage for 18 years. Um, my husband and I had, our situation was a little, a little different. We grew apart from one another. Um, not in that we no longer loved each other in a sense, but it was just the, the growth that I had had in my life versus the growth that he had had in his life didn't match up. And then some things started to go wrong. Um, at the time that we got divorced, I believe my children were maybe seven and, no, I'm sorry. I think they were 14 and 10 or 11 at the time that we got divorced. Um, I had been, at that point, it had been a lot of years that I was thinking I needed to do something different. We tried everything that we could to repair our marriage and it just wasn't working. And so I had to, as an educator, I saw what would happen with families that experienced divorce. And so I did not want to do that to my children. Um, so I stayed a lot longer than I probably should have. Um, I also knew even, even things like keeping the same last name as as having the same last name as my children. There is a stigma that is that exists in education with teachers and administrators when parents don't share the same name as their children or the children have different last names and their siblings. There, There is a stigma, whether we like it or not. Maybe. And that was something that I considered um, when making the decision to, to get divorced. Another thing that was huge in our relationship was that um, I was, I was very fearful that my children would get the idea that it's okay. I, I was fearful that my son would get the idea that it's okay for him to essentially live off of a woman. And I didn't want my daughter either to get the idea 
that as as a woman that she should take care of a man and by taking care of and living off of um, I don't mean any disrespect to my ex-husband he did work all the time but um, but I was I was increasing our, my knowledge increasing our income and things like that and he was not and so um, my children started to develop um, I could see where they would come to me and ask me for everything because they got the understanding that mommy carried the clout mommy had the money and and they knew um, they knew that based on some of the conversations that they heard and it, again it wasn't it wasn't a contentious marriage we weren't arguing a lot in front of the children um, there was there was there was no great animosity that, that the children witnessed and so um, I decided though at that point with them being um, preteens and teenagers that it was very important for them I wanted them to see the roles that I felt were important for men and women, husbands and wives. And I did not feel like the way that my marriage was going was what I wanted for my children to have going into adulthood. So I made the decision to get divorced. Um, at the time we were, my, my ex-husband was still living in the same city as us. And then shortly thereafter, maybe within six months or so, he decided to move to another state which was not something that I saw have I didn't see that coming. And um, that was very hard on my son and my daughter. Um, I, we did everything we could to, he was a few hours away, so we would meet halfway and, and switch the children, you know, for any breaks that they had. Sometimes on some weekends, we, we would um, swap the kids so that they could see their dad as often as possible. Um, but, um, I, I do understand now that that just was not enough. Um, I, of course, any child is going to fare better when they have more support. Two parents in a home, we, we all know that. Two, two parents in a home, unless it's a violent situation or a neglectful situation, it's always going to be a better situation. Um, like your guest speaker last night, um, Adrienne Trimble was saying, like her, she and her husband balance each other. Well, without two parents in the home, then you have one parent trying to balance the children and the work and all of those things. And so that was a new situation for us. Um, I put both of my children in counseling at the time, again, being an educator and knowing um, the right tools and the right um, roads to travel to help your children succeed. I put them both in counseling. Um, ironically, they, they went through counseling sessions for several months. And then um, the counselors told me, it looks like the kids are doing fine with the adjustment. They don't have to come anymore. And then I just found out probably within the last couple of years, my daughter told me that um, she's experiencing some issues with commitment in relationships. And she told me that um, she told her counselor what she felt the counselor needed to hear in order to not have to go back to counseling anymore. And so um, I had to draw a very staunch line and tell my children that um, I gave them those tools, I put them in counseling, and that it was up to them to do the work that they needed. And so I, I told my daughter that, um, because what she did was she told us that it was because we got divorced, that she felt like 
she couldn't trust the one relationship that she felt would always be there for her, which was our nuclear family. She felt like us getting divorced took that away from her, and so now she can't trust that anyone else is going to stay around. And so I told her that um, the fact that she didn't really process through that when she was um, a teenager um, was not on me because she was, at, in a sense, trying to place that, um, placing blame on me for, for the issues that she's having. And I told her that um, that was her decision to make at that point to just tell a counselor what she felt like they wanted to hear to exit her from the program. Um, my son um, never, he didn't say anything like that, but my son had issues with motivation. He had those same issues when, from all of his life, essentially. My ex-husband ex and I um, worked tirelessly to be able to find some sort of motivation within our son. Um, he played ice hockey, he had, um, he played baseball, he did lots of different chess club, like everything that, everything that he wanted to do, um, Boy Scouts, we had him in all of those different things and trying to get him, trying to get him motivated to do well in school. And Jamal is a very, very smart boy. As a matter of fact, my daughter who excelled through school always told her brother, her younger brother, that um, he was smarter than she is, but Jamal just didn't, he wouldn't play the game of school or of life. And so he, um, he wouldn't do his schoolwork. He would always say, I already know this. Why do I need to practice if I already know it? And then he would take the test and do well on the test. But his grades were kind of middle of the road because he, never, he wouldn't do the work. He wouldn't do homework. He wouldn't do projects and things like that. So those kinds of behaviors continued after, after the divorce, except it was a little more challenging for me to handle because now it was me handling most of that by myself with their dad being out of state. I'm sorry, was there, was there, did I hit every point that you asked? Yeah, that was really good. That was good. Um, one question I want to go back to, um, I have a person that wanted clarification on the last name stigma that you talked about uh, that, that schools, that, that tends to follow people in schools. Okay. Um, and I apologize for just brushing over that for those um, who may not know what that is. But um, when you, um, when a teacher gets their roster, their student roster, and they see the names of the children and they see the names of the parents, um, it'll have one parent or both parents. So you automatically know whether this child is coming from a single family, a single parent home, or they have support of a mom and a dad in the house, or let's in this day and age, two parents in the house. Um, and then when you see, sometimes you may see um, a child's name, like for example, you have Wayne Pledger. Well, Wayne Pledger's mom might be um, Sharon Smith. And then you instantly, people are drawing conclusions. Okay, was, was Miss Smith not married to Wayne's dad? Maybe she was, maybe they got divorced for whatever reason, maybe he died and she remarried. Like you never know what the situation might be. But in the school district where I work, I was one of, as a matter of fact, I was the only black teacher in the building for multiple years. And again, this is more of an affluent area where most of the white families had 
both the mom and the dad in the home. And so a lot of the teachers within our, who work in our district also live in the community. And so um, they would draw stigmas right away on these children. Like, oh, the child is from a single parent home. Or um, what is the mom's name? I don't even know the mom's name because the, her name is different from the child's name. Um, so um, as, as an educator within that realm, and my children also went to the same school district where I taught. So I knew that if I changed my last name as my children went into middle school and high school, that those same stigmas would then be applied to my children. Instantly, if I had gone back to my maiden name, they would see, oh, well, this is um, a single mother and she wasn't married to these children's father or whatever. So what we did was I just kept my name and my ex-husband's name on everything. As a matter of fact, it was we had been divorced for years before any of my colleagues even knew or any of my children's teachers knew um, that we were divorced. But that was something that I had to work at and I did that to prevent my children from having that same stigma that I saw lots of those white teachers placing on on black children in their in their families. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, there's another question um, that Talise had asked. I'm sorry, I meant to ask, answer this question for you. Um, no, Talise, all of the children are not at home. They happen to be here now because of um, the coronavirus. And, and so my daughter teaches in Indianapolis. That's our 25-year-old. And so she came here to be with us. And then my 21-year-old no longer lives in the house with us, but he came so that he could spend time with us as well. And then we have our 18-year-old is a student at George Washington University in D.C. She's back home because of the virus. And then um, the youngest also lives here with us. So and I, I have recently remarried. And so my husband and I have his two children here with us regularly, the 18-year-old and the 14-year-old. Two of his children live here with us. And then um, they spend right now, over the course of the virus, they've been spending one week at our home and then a week at their own. Wow. So I also I want to back up just a little bit. You, you said a lot of good information. Somebody else who's on the call commented that they actually have that same challenge with the schools. She has four girls um, and she's actually not married to the dad, but they automatically call her the last names of her daughters because all of her daughters have their father's last name. So that's a little stigma with that. Um, as far as when you mentioned that uh, your daughter mentioned that uh, she didn't fully take advantage of the counseling mm -hmm. that, that you made available to her. Um, we know that a lot of kids come to a point where they start placing blame on the parents. Well, you did this and you didn't, you didn't do this for me. You didn't do that for me, you know. Uh, and it usually takes them becoming a parent and actually going through the process <laughs> to understand the uh, sacrifice that was actually made. I know I, I, I can attest to that myself. But how did you manage 
the blame that was placed on you as a result of getting a divorce and, and them having their challenges? How did you manage taking the blame and how did you, do you still deal with any guilt? Um, I, I try not to indulge in that guilt because at the time that I got divorced, I really thought, I, I really felt I prayed over it for years. I, I, like I said, we had counseling, we talked to countless pastors and really tried to rectify the situation that was occurring in our marriage. And so I didn't, I didn't go into the divorce lightly at all. And so I know that in my heart that I did what was best for all four of us. Um, my ex-husband is able to take care of himself now. Um, my, my, my children don't have those same ideas that they were developing about, about gender roles in, in a marriage. And um, so if you ask me if I would do it all over again, I would have to say yes. I wouldn't do anything differently. Um, I think that the struggles that my particular son has are struggles that he already had when his dad was there in the home. Um, I wish that their relationship was closer. Once my ex-husband moved out of state, um, he felt as though my son and my daughter should contact him because they knew his phone number and they can call me anytime they want to talk. Um, I felt differently about that. I felt that him being the parent, that he should have been contacting them every day, if you know, every other day. Contact them regularly. Talk with your children. Find out what's going on with them. Um, and I, I, I really feel like um, if his presence had been there, even in that, even in phone conversations, maybe maybe Jamal might be different. Maybe not. We don't know for sure. Um, he's still struggling with motivation issues now. He, nothing really motivates him. Money doesn't motivate him. Um, consequences don't motivate him. Um, they are starting, to, consequences are starting to motivate him now because he's learning natural consequences of his actions, what he's doing or what he's not doing. So, so let's, let's talk about that real quick, Claire. Um, didn't mean to cut you off, but you went through a period of time where he was living with you um, as an adult, unmotivated, trying to figure out what he wanted to do in life and we were having conversations you know you set a deadline at some point uh where that was it if he didn't have something going on by this date he was out of there and then that date came and it went and he was still there and so can you talk about the um either the guilt or the process of how you felt trying to make the decision of whether you should put him out of your house or not to help him to grow up or to get rid of the feeling of him living uh, off of you so that, you know, he can grow up, you know, just all of those, those questions. Can you just help us answer, uh, help us with answering the question, what was your process? What was your thought process? And then what was the pinnacle of how you made your decision. Sure. 
Um, like I said before, Jamal has always struggled with motivation to be successful or what we deem as successful. Um, he did graduate from high school on time. He went off to Bowling Green State University, um, although we didn't know until a week before he was due on campus that he was actually going. And it was because I refused to do everything for him through that college process. Um, I wasn't going to do college applications for him. I wasn't doing financial aid forms for him. I did the part that I needed to do as a parent, but I was not going to um, do the things that he needed to do. And he wasn't motivated to do it. So when he came to me a week before and said, okay, I did everything I needed to do. He had his dorm assignment. He had, um, he had figured out how he was going to pay for school the first semester and everything. It was like, okay, this is good. And I felt good about that. I felt like, okay, finally, he's doing something. So um, Jamal went to Bowling Green for the first semester. Um, after, um, after about a month or so, I get a call from him. And, and I had spoken to him in the interim, but he called and, and told me that he needed to make this payment for his tuition. Now, when, he, um, when we dropped him off there, I knew that he was using some student loans to pay and there was some money that we paid as well, but there was, he, he wasn't, um, he didn't fully disclose to me that he was going to have to pay this payment each month as well. And so he needed this money. Um, my ex-husband could not afford to kick in um, the money. And so that was money that was, I wasn't counting on to be detracted from my, from my household. And so, um, we struggled through that first semester. I told Jamal he needed to get a job on campus so that he could contribute to his, his college finances as well, and he didn't. Um, like I said, he played ice hockey. There was an ice rink on campus, and he knew how he, he, he could play ice hockey. He could have actually gotten, potentially gotten a scholarship um, for ice hockey um, after his first year there. He didn't go out for that. He could have taught learn to skate or the, he could have taught in the youth hockey program, excellent hockey player. And he didn't do those things. He told me that it was, the ice rink was too far from his dorm. And on the campus, there was a bus that would take them anywhere they needed to go on the campus. So essentially just being lazy. And so as he came home for winter break. And then when he was supposed to go back, he needed money to start the second semester. Well, over the winter break, he did not work while he was at home. I had told him to get, he again, telling him about working at the ice rink. You have to get your CPR and your first aid training. Do that over winter break so then you can work at the ice rink on the campus. He messed around and didn't take the classes. And so my solution to that was, okay, we need to go and pick your stuff up from the dorm then because I wasn't going to break my back um, to pay for him to go to school and he wouldn't even get a, a small campus job to kick in a little bit of money. And so, and I had, I raised my children, I raised both of my kids learning to do everything around the house. They learned how to cook, they learned how to clean, they learned how to change a tire and change the inside of a toilet. They learned, both of them, boys or girls. I didn't want there to be any, you know, like, okay, the girls, the boys only take out the trash and the girls have to clean the whole house. I wasn't playing, I wasn't doing those things to my children. And so, um, but I always instilled in them that I will, my effort will meet their effort. 
And so whatever it is that they wanted to do, if they wanted to do something and they worked hard at it, I was going to work equally as hard to get them to whatever they needed or get whatever they needed to do what they wanted to do. And so um, that I applied that when he was at Bowling Green. Like, I'm sorry, you're not working that hard for it. I'm not going to work that hard for it. So he came back home. So now we ha I have this disgruntled um, high school graduate with one semester in college in my house. And I don't remember now how long it took for him to get a job, but it took him quite a while to get a job, several months, which should, it shouldn't have. Um, but it, it was me constantly goading him, you need to get a job, you need to do this, you need to do that. And so um, Jamal worked for a while. He lost a job at a grocery store because he was consistently late. Um, and I was telling him along the way, you're going to lose that job, you're going to get fired. Sure enough, that's what happened. And then um, I very slowly started pulling back support from him. You know, it's like, I'm not buying him clothes anymore. I'm not buying your shoes anymore. This is on you. He still, you know, he, he was at my house. And at that point, he wasn't even paying rent then. Um, so um, over, over some time, he did go back to, he went to our community college and took some classes there. And he worked a little part-time job. I was satisfied with that. It was something productive. But then he stopped going to school. I don't, I don't want to go this semester. Okay, well, what are you going to do? So I, I was getting um, upset with him that he was only working 20 hours a week. And he started doing some other things that he had no business doing or that I would, didn't agree with, smoking and, and um, drinking, things like that. And I don't do those things, so I wouldn't allow those things in my house. Um, but he would go with his friends and hang out. Well, only working 20 hours a week left a lot of idle time during the week. So I insisted that he either got an additional part-time job or took some classes in school. And my requirement was that he, if, if I'm working 40 hours a week and contributing to our household, I needed him to be putting in 40 hours a week contributing to our household. And um, at that time, I, I hadn't gotten married yet. And so... Um, so that, in, that meant that he had to take enough classes that would equal up to 20 hours or get an additional job, additional part-time job, or he could find a full-time job. And so um, he was dragging his feet again. And so I finally said, okay, that's it. I've had enough of this. And I put Jamal under a contract. And I think this may have been in October um, of one year. And I said to him, I, I took him out to dinner. We sat there at the table. I had the contract all written up. And it said that um, he, he had to meet those requirements of 40 hours a week. And it listed all of the things that I needed for him to do around the house and all the things that he couldn't do. It applied a curfew to him um, because, you know, he's thinking like, oh, I'm a man now. I'm grown. I can do what I want to do. I can come where I want to. No, not in my house. So um, with this contract, he had 90 days, I gave him 90 days um, until January 31st to get another job or go back to school. So that meant like the following semester, the winter semester. And um, January 1st came along, January 2nd, 5th, school starts back at community college. He's not in, enrolled in school. He doesn't have another job. And so it started tearing me apart that I was going to have to ask my son to leave my house. Um, but when I, before I made the contract, 
and I, I had told my um, my significant other, my fiance at the time, I, I said, um, when I do this contract, it has to be like I must, it, I can't put him on this contract until I know that I'm ready to put him out if he doesn't do what I say that he has to do. And so I had gotten to a point where I just had enough. And so that's when I put this contract in place. Now, Jamal and I have a wonderful relationship. Um, we are, he was actually born on my 30th birthday. And so um, we are like two peas in a pod. Um, we talk about a lot of different things. We, we've cried about things together. We, we have like our own little language that we speak, just a, a, just a wonderful relationship. But there was this other part of him that was was killing me inside. You know, I, like I work hard, and he doesn't have my same work ethic. And you know, it, it was just bothersome to me. And on the flip side of that, I had to remember that he wasn't made just for me. That he had another side, and I told you the struggles that I had in my first marriage. So I'm starting to see some of these same things that I saw in his dad playing out in my son's life, and that was hurtful to me because it's like you, he saw how hard I worked. Um, they saw me, my, my children saw me graduate with my bachelor's degree and my master's degree and I was working on my doctorate. They, they were there through all of that. And so um, I just, for the life of me, couldn't understand why this, this child just wasn't, you know, like, what is it? What, what did I miss as a parent? What did I not do? Um, but he, something had to change. And so, um, January rolled around and I saw that these changes were not being made every day. He didn't do something towards um, like filling out applications or with anything. It was just killing me inside. Um, so I, I talked to my pastor and told my pastor what was coming because I was going to need his support when my when I had to kick kick him out. Like I'm going to need some. I'm going to need a shoulder to cry on. I'm going to need some people to pray for me. I'm going to need my whole village. And so. Um, so in, during that conversation, during the, the course of that month, like I had conversations with my fiance at the time, like what are we gonna do with this? And um, people were telling me, my pastor, my fiance, um, by that time, he had actually gotten married by that time. And so um, my pastor, my husband, one of my dear aunts was telling me, I was telling her what was going on, and she, they, they all told me, Jamal is not the kind of kid that you should put out into the street. And I was saying, well, he's not doing what he's supposed to do. We have this contract. I have to remain true to my word. And they were saying that, well, what my aunt told me bluntly was that um, one of three things was gonna happen. Either he was going to um, wind up with a woman and some older woman who already has children and they're gonna make more babies that he was going to start doing something illegal that might get him put in jail, like selling drugs or something, or he was going to wind up dead. And so when, when um, she said that to me, that kind of made me, that created a different kind of struggle for me. Who, you know who, said, that? who said that? Who said that? I'm sorry? Who was it that told you that, those three things? My, my aunt. And then, um, so, and, and my husband also was saying, well, he's like, well, babe, you know, he, he is a, you know, he's a great person and sometimes young men just need a little extra time. 
and um, he is working. He does have a job. Um, and he did. He had a, a, a job working 20 hours a week. Um, but he was actually working at the school that I teach at. He was one of the lunch supervisors. Everybody loved him there. They still do. They still ask me about him every time. The kids ask me about him, the, the people that worked with Jamal, all the teachers. A lot of the teachers were people that taught him when he went through the school. Um, and I mean, he really is just a good young man. Miss Benita, let, let me jump in. I want to I wanted to make a couple of points based on what you said. You said some really interesting things, and I, I want to sum them up into three points that I'd like to make. One is counseling. Two are stages of the young man as he goes from infant to adult life, and then three is structure. So the first thing I want to go back to is counseling. You mentioned the Dutch ball and your daughter had went through counseling, and even your daughter mentioned that there were some things she did she wasn't totally forthcoming with so now she's still dealing with some issues so counseling is very important it was excellent you made some excellent moves by the way as far as first of all getting the counseling out etc so also i would say that with jamal that counseling is not a once and done of course you always want to continue that if possible if needed but also i wanted to get into the male your ex-husband making the comment that um if they want to call, they can, and he didn't need to call. I, I think you're spot on that not just him, but all of us as men need to reach out more and call. We get caught up in our egos, and we're not as emotional or as in touch with the kids' emotions as we should be, and understand that even though they're saying they're okay, they're not okay. Even kids that don't go through divorce, they're always going through different stages of life. Right. So definitely men as a whole need to be sensitive to that and just reach out all the time because it builds trust, it builds stability, and it builds predictability. You know, young kids have uh, great security when they can predict that their parents are there, they're going to call, they can go trust and have those conversations with them. So that's the first thing on the counseling I wanted to talk about. The second thing is stages. So we all know that the, the stages of uh, a kid growing up are first the infant stage, then that transitions to adolescence and then next the young adult stage and then the adult stage and even once you get to the adult stage you build your 20s your 30s your 40s etc those stages are like cups right so from a male perspective i like to look at it as if you have something in your infancy that you haven't dealt with that cup gets put on top of another cup which is the adolescent stage and so if you dealt with it great you, you now have two cups right and if you have if you dealt with something you take one away but if you haven't dealt with it now you take those two cups and now you have three cups when you go from adolescence to young adult life and then young adult life to adult life. So when our kids, it's tough enough transition into adult life, but when they go through something like a divorce or a single parent home or something along those lines, we definitely have to stay in tune with that and make sure as a male, just from, come from a male perspective, that we understand what they're going through, especially young men, because a young man is searching when they get to that young adult life. They're searching for that man to emulate. And they're going to find somebody, whether it's an uncle, a cousin, a nephew, uh, the drug dealer, the pastor. They are going to emulate somebody, good or bad. And it's normally going to be the male that's most involved in their life. It could be one of their boys. It could be their boy's uncle or their boy's father. Their boy's, you never know. That's why it's important to stay really close because they will definitely find someone and emulate them for a period of time and define their 
their uh, list of what's right and what's wrong. The next thing I want to talk about was structure. So really applaud you for maintaining that structure while you were single, Ms. Danita. And then of course, eventually when you got married, you had that assistance, but also some of the things you mentioned about having a contract with them, letting him lose his job, uh, excuse me, giving him 90 days to get a job or go to school. I was, I was hoping you would get to the point where you would say, or get out. And I really appreciated when he said, it scared you to have to think that, hey, this is my, my quote unquote, my baby. I was the youngest of five. My mother still calls me up baby, drive me crazy, but it is what it is. So I clearly understand where you're coming from. However, Jamal has a lot of character and we sometimes we sell our kids short when they get to that age because they won't move forward unless they're put in a position to move forward. And because he has such strong character, he's coming from good cloth. And even the young kids that, that are from broken homes, they have you, they have good mothers in their life. You have to allow them to fail because as long as they have some kind of covering, some kind of protection, some kind of mother hen, they're not gonna move forward. Young men have a proclivity to be laid back. They can say they're going to do whatever, but if you got some food in the fridge, cool. And it's been, I heard I heard you too, you said he and I are really cool with like two pieces. He knows that. He knows it. And yeah, and, and all of kids, we, they figure that out with their moms. And I see it with Jeffrey and Dr. Leslie all the time. And once they know that, they know which buttons to push, or I call cushion buttons. So they know no matter what, I'm going to get away with this, right? And so you have to cut that cord and I went through that when my mother and father I was on a basketball scholarship and decided I wanted to pleasure the fraternity and have all kinds of fun and after a while they came back and said you know what we're gonna cut you and I was like oh okay so I was on my way to the military and ended up fortunately getting an academic scholarship and some other things and it worked out but long short that structure is really really important and I like when you said you did go to your now husband you went to the pastor Mm -hmm. So that's that you did a real good job, I think. And, and from a male perspective, it's important to understand how young men think, because now he's in a position where, OK, I got to do something. So mm -hmm. hey, if it if it comes to the point where you say, you know what, you got to go. I'm going to give you an apartment. I'll even pay your first month's rent. But you got to figure this out and then, and then do it. See, so you shake your head. You have to do it from afar. That doesn't mean throw him out to the wolves, but watch him. This, the last thing I'd say is those three things you heard from your aunt, you'll wind up with a woman or selling drugs or dead. That's fear. You can't be driven by fear, right? He, he comes from, you are a great part of his life. So I'm not saying kids don't make mistakes. We all make mistakes. But the chances of him ending up in a bad way are slim because you can still, you're there for him, you're monitoring him. He has other people and men in his life now. He will be okay, but you've got to let him go because it's going to drive him crazy as well. I'll pause and let Ms. Talese talk as well. Hey, Danita. Um, first of all, I found it, I, I'm trying to, you said so much that I could respond to, and I, um, I can um, relate to a lot of what you said. I've never been married, so I've been a single parent um, all of my life since I've had kids, but one of the things that you, when I was listening to you um, share about your marriage, your previous marriage, 
and you said that you guys were going apart and I just want to make sure that I understood you clearly it sounded like you were constantly moving and trying to trying to grow and 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 uh, move forward whereas he was more stagnant is it am I accurate in that hearing you correctly yeah yeah okay exactly okay so then when you made the comment about him um him feeling like the kids needed to call him versus him taking the initiative to make the phone calls first i believe that 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 was a part or is a part of his um he he wants people to do things for him you have to ask him what he needs versus him telling you you have to everybody has to come to him because it's too much work and it's too much energy for him to make the first move which is why he probably required or felt like the kids needed to call him first not because it was some platform that he held but because it was less work for him to do which went along with what to me with what you were saying about um how you were trying to grow where he was more stagnant in his um growth as maybe a man or even in his career choices or um so and so that that was one of the observations or something that I got from that as far as I thought that it was um awesome that you I think you said when your daughter came to you um about telling saying that she didn't disclose you know everything she just said what the counselor wanted to hear so she can get up out of the situation and in response to her you didn't take that blame for yourself that was um to me that was very powerful because it's very easy for mothers or parents to assume blame for the behaviors and the things that their children are doing because we feel like we're in control of their lives as long as they're under us but my son so quickly tell me mom you're not my only influence and my response is well I'm, i may not be but why not take mine over everybody else's that's my question why choose to listen to someone else that may not have your best interest but you aren't we are not our children's only influence and so they're going to make choices and decisions based on things that um that they they see or that they think that they want and and that's going to be a given and that's a hard that's something hard to deal with as a parent especially for me as a single parent is very hard because i knew that i wasn't giving my kids what i saw people around me give their kids my sister who's married and she has two sons and some of my girlfriends who are married and they have two sons and i see the difference between one planning a family and then just happen to have one there's a difference you know um so just listening to you um I think you've done an awesome job and um I love some of the decisions that you made. My sons wanted to leave the house. I didn't have to put them out. They wanted to leave and now they want to come back. Um because they realize how much responsibility it is to be an adult. But I did start with little things like um like you my oldest son I said you got to start paying rent. Well, someone so's mom doesn't pay rent. I'm not their mother. you know and then he left and then you know he found it challenging i'm still there for them i still am paying some bill every now and then because i recognize that it is challenging for them and i've met with a lot of challenges with two of the three of my sons and i have four children i have a daughter don't do that to yourself i have a 11-year-old girl and a 29-year-old son how old were you when you had the girl i was um approaching 40 
I was 39, I was 40 that year. So we're essentially 40 years apart. And she yeah. hates that I uh, talk about getting older. <laughs> but no, I think you've done, I, I love what you shared and I can see and hear some similarities and I can see strength that you have that I didn't always have. So, you know, I appreciate what you have shared. Thank you. So Talise, I hear that fire kind of got hot while you were talking. Uh, and you're on tomorrow. <laughs> oh, I'm on tomorrow. Okay. You're on tomorrow. So okay. as we wrap up, Claire, everybody wants to know, and Adrian, she's listening. She says she's in a loud place, but she wants to know what was your turning point to put him out? Okay. Um, so I, I did make him start paying rent while he was under that contract. Um, so that time came, January 31st came, I had a discussion with him, told him, about the people who had um, who had talked on his behalf that kept him to be able to stay in my household. And then um, if we fast forward to June, um, he worked at a school, so his job was ending. He still hadn't gotten a job anywhere. I was getting, I was really fed up, told him, we gotta do something different, this, this has to stop. And then um, my husband and I went on a vacation in July. He and, um, her 18-year-old girl decided to have a party in our house while we were gone, despite us telling them that they could not do any of those things. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And so um, once we, we got home, we didn't find out right away, but did a little investigating and found out that they had done this. And um, I, I told Jamal he needed to give me my keys. And so... Um, he had to leave and he went and stayed with some friends and he hasn't been back since that was eight months ago. Um, I, I am happy to say that I have seen some things in him like uh, Mr. Wang was saying that um, he is starting to grow up a little bit. We see these things that um, I'm so happy to see when he'll say, okay, well, I have to do this or I have to do that. And it's, and it's something responsible like okay, this is, that's what I needed to see. But then he'll do something else that, you know, it's like, oh, Jamal, why did you do that? Um, and so, um, so he's still growing, he's still learning, he's still growing up. Um, but there's, um, there, I, I, I do have hope for him. And I, I know that he's gonna come into his own. Um, Jamal is going to be, whatever he decides to do, he's gonna be, great at it. It's just a matter of him figuring out what it is that he wants to do with his life. So um, like I said, he's here with us right now over the course of the um, being quarantined or the social distancing. He has come so that he can spend some time with us. Um, yesterday just cleaned up the bathroom. That's something that you know I used to have to goad him to do when he was here. Just, you know, can I can I help you with this? I'll, oh, I'll do that for you, mommy. I'll do this for that, you know. Um, so, because now he sees, like, he, he sees that, okay, he has to buy laundry detergent, he has to buy toilet tissue and toothpaste and, you know, all of those things that he took for granted. He, he's now um, understanding, you know, what it, what it was that I was trying to get him to, to see. There are certain responsibilities that you're going to have to take and, you know, if you don't, the natural consequences is that you are going to suffer for this. So um, he's, you know, you all, I know, I know everybody who I know on this call believes in the power of prayer. And so you got to pray for Jamal. 
Emmy. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you, Claire. You have shared a lot of information that I know, uh, I trust and believe helped someone else on the call. And so on that note, we're going to end. We're trying to make sure we keep them uh, to that hour. And so Mr. Wayne, um, did you have any closing remarks there? Um, I just wanted to say thank you. Um, this has been just over the course of these few days, it's been so interesting to hear. I, I know parts and pieces of, of different people's stories, but to hear um, really that, um, that transparency in, in the struggles that they may have had or where the struggles stem from or the struggles that we're still having, like I'm having with Jamal still, um, just, just being able to, to come together in, this, in a place such as this and talk about these things that are so paramount to us raising our sons. Yeah. So I appreciate you, Dr. Leslie, and um, I, I really thank you for having me on tonight. Thank you so much for being transparent and coming on tonight. Uh, if you all can tune in tomorrow, same time, Talise, uh, who's also on the call, she will be our guest speaker for tomorrow. All right, Mr. Wayne, you want to close us out in prayer? Sure. Thank you very much. Heavenly Father, we come to you again, just thanking you for all your thoughts, all the transparency, and all the trust, God. We all learn from one another. And we can't do it without you. So definitely thank Mr. Nader for sharing. And uh, thank you for everyone who expressed comments, thoughts, feelings. We're learning with each other. And we continue to learn and grow each day. Bless us this week. Keep us all safe. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. And feel free to invite someone else on the call as well tomorrow. You can share your uh, login information with them. Okay. Hey, right. Thank you. Thank Got you. Out. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Dr. Leslie Inspires. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Also, for more content and resources, please be sure to visit our website, www.drlesslieinspires.com. We'll see you in the next episode.